you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10. If you're new to covenant, it is typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and we are in the midst of a series through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. And I want to read for you this morning the first ten verses of John chapter 10. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's holy and inspired, unerring and life-giving Word. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Let's give it our full attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, we ask your help in hearing and receiving your word as it's proclaimed. Use your word, Lord, as you have promised to use it, to sanctify us, to conform us more and more into the image of your Son. And this we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. This week, actually it would be last week, the, the journal The Atlantic ran an article entitled, Jake Plummer Wants to Live Forever. Well, that caught my attention. Jake Plummer was at one time the quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals. Now he travels about extolling the healing properties of mushrooms, all kinds of mushrooms, Uh, Believing that they can, if used properly, and the right kinds of mushrooms, that they can actually reverse the aging process. Thus the title of the article, Jake Plummer Wants to Live Forever. His plan is to develop these mushrooms in such a way to grant us a, a, a lifespan before this untold. Now, Plummer has products to sell you. He has what are no doubt delicious mushroom bars that you can buy for $6. He has bottles of mushroom extract that will set you back only about $25. And if you want to go up to $60, you can purchase a bottle of some of his mushroom supplements. And on and on it goes. Now, 
I am not against natural supplements. God has filled the earth with good things. That's, that's good. But what Jake Plummer and so many others are after is not just good health, which I've heard is probably a good thing, but more than that, what they are after is the impossible dream of eternal life. This quest to find a way to live forever, to reverse the aging process. When everybody knows that it's not in mushrooms, if you want to live forever, the Fountain of Youth is at a gift shop in St. Augustine, Florida, and you can buy t-shirts there also. Well, it is into this confusion and into this futility that Jesus speaks and gives clarity. Now, what we have here in chapter 10 is the final public address from Jesus that's recorded by John. And what the Lord is doing is further revealing the nature of his person and work, which is what he was always about in his earthly ministry. When Jesus would teach, when he would make public pronouncements, all of that typically served, even with his miracles, all of that typically served to do two things, to reveal who he was and what he came to do. And he's doing that here now. And he does so by appealing to a very, very familiar vocation in that world at that time and still to this time, the role of shepherd. And it is not entirely clear how much of a time gap there is between Jesus' words at the end of chapter 9 where he rebukes the Pharisees and what he says here at the beginning of chapter 10 as he launches into this portion of public teaching with the formal truly, truly. It, it may be that he says truly, truly and launches into this just immediately after his final words of rebuke to the Pharisees. Could be just following right along. There could be a, a gap of time, hours, days, months. We're not really sure. But what we do have is a strong thematic link between Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9 and what he says here about bad shepherds in chapter 10. And the first thing that Jesus does is appeal to one of the most common sites in the Judean countryside, something that people would have seen every day, even depended upon every day, for everything from food to textiles to animals for sacrifice. He appeals to sheep and shepherds and sheep folds, sheep pens. And what we see here, and especially in the passage we'll be looking at next week, is that Jesus clearly identifies himself as a shepherd. And not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd. Jesus refers here to a sheep pen, beginning there in verse 1. Again, a very common sight in those days. Uh, sheep pens or sheep folds were at times found out in the countryside, uh, but they were also found commonly in villages in towns and cities where oftentimes several families would bring their small little flocks together at night in a common sheep pen, oftentimes abutted up next to a house. And they would hire a watchman to stand guard over those sheep in that sheep pen throughout the night to help ensure that thieves and robbers and predators did not get into the sheep pen or steal the sheep. And to this day, shepherds in that region still do much the same thing. And one of the things that Jesus alludes to here is the very common reality, again, that people would have known as a part of their cultural milieu at that time, is that one of the ways that shepherd-led sheep, in fact, an essential, an essential ingredient 
to their leading of the sheep is that the sheep would learn the voices of their shepherds. They would recognize the voices of their shepherds. And so what you would have, again, in these sheep pens, whether they were in a town abutted up next to a house or somewhere out in the countryside, perhaps larger, uh, containing larger numbers of various flocks, what would happen is that when the shepherd of a particular flock within the larger gathering of sheep within that sheep pen would come, how they would differentiate the sheep was very simple. First of all, the shepherd knew which sheep belonged to him. He could recognize them. But the other important ingredient is the sheep knew their shepherd. They could recognize his voice. And to this day, shepherds throughout that region um, do very common things vocally so that their sheep will come to them out of other common folds and follow them. Sometimes it's a series of clicks and whistles. Oftentimes it's songs they will sing or they'll speak out their names because they'll oftentimes name each sheep. And they'll speak out their names in kind of this sing-songy pattern that the sheep recognize. And out of this common sheep pen, with sheep belonging to a couple of different owners, the shepherd of one particular flock will approach, the door, the gate to that pen will open, he'll speak out or sing the names of his sheep, and they individually will come out through that opening and follow him to pasture. It's been going on that way for thousands of years, and it's still done that way. And what a rich source of imagery the Lord draws upon to describe not only himself, but to describe us and how it is that he knows us and how it is and why it is that we follow him. Another common thing you see among shepherds from that region to this day is that they did not herd the sheep from behind but they led the sheep from up front they did not herd the sheep with with whips and clubs but they led the sheep and still do to this day by their voice and while some sheep were raised for food and some were raised for sacrifices most were raised for their wool now why that's important is that that means that the shepherd would tend to particular sheep for years, knowing them, knowing them by name, becoming attached to them. You could even say loving these particular sheep. And you couldn't help but have a loving bond there because what that shepherd had done is he had invested all of his life into that flock. You invest yourself in that way towards anything and you'll come to love that thing. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever it is you treasure, your heart's going to follow you there. Well, it shouldn't be unusual that shepherds who watch over the same flock season after season come to love those sheep. Why? Because they labor for them, they sacrifice for them, they give up all their time for them, they get dirty for them, they deliver their lambs. All of this. And so there is this this bond that, that develops between the sheep and the shepherd. And so bad shepherds, unwatchful, unskilled, self-absorbed, and cowardly, this was an absolute disaster for the flock because they stand in stark contrast to the watchful, skilled, self-sacrificing, courageous shepherds who watch over the flock faithfully. And Jesus warns against those who seek access to the sheep in ways that are self-serving here he calls them thieves and robbers 
And of course, Jesus isn't literally talking about sheep and shepherds at this point. He's talking about people, the people of God and those who would lead them astray. You see there in verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now what we're going to find out, Jesus being the door, if, if Jesus is saying, the shepherds of my people will come through me. Anyone who seeks to, to minister to and to lead the people of God apart from Christ is a thief and a robber. More on that in just a moment. These thieves and robbers would have been the false messiahs. Going back to the days of the prophets, there had been false messiahs. And why wouldn't there have been? It would have been appealing. I'm the messiah. Come and make me king. Put me on the throne. Surround me with riches. And these false messiahs would come along and seek gatherings, and they would come and go as easily as they arrived on the, on the scene in the first place. And all along, what, what were they doing? They were leading God's people astray. They were thieves and robbers. They didn't come to God's people through God. They came of their own accord for their own selfish purposes. But it wasn't just the false messiahs. It was, it was in the long tradition of prophets and priests as well. There had been so many of the prophets and priests who were bad shepherds. It was a phenomenon that had dogged the people of God for many generations. And in fact, we see this, we hear these words from the, from the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. So long before the coming of Christ, listen to the words of the Lord through the prophet. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the sheep, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and none to search or seek for them. It's tragic, isn't it? That God would speak through the prophet, pronouncing judgment, upon those faithless men who had been called to serve the people of God, to feed the people of God, and of course that means feed them spiritually, to, to read and proclaim to them the word of God and the law of God. They had utterly failed to do that, neglecting God's word, neglecting the worship of God, but rather using the office as a means to aggrandize themselves, as a means to seize hold of privileges, as a means to serve themselves. Because of that, the sheep were scattered. And if we look at the, his, the history of Israel and Judah, um, it is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking to see how they continued to wander off into idolatries, oftentimes being led there by bad shepherds, bad priests, bad prophets, bad kings. And then listen to what else Ezekiel says, or what the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. On a day of clouds and thick darkness, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. The words of the Lord are very clear there. God says, I will come to be the great and everlasting shepherd of my sheep. And right here in John chapter 10, the one who speaks is that shepherd. The Lord himself come to gather his sheep. And such words of strong judgment for those who prey upon God's people for their own pleasure, the Lord says, I will destroy. You know, sheep are particularly vulnerable animals. They lack the sorts of teeth or claws and even speed that's typically found in animals to help them escape predators. And it's as though God created sheep to actually need human oversight. One Christian physicist said one time at a colloquium on uh, debating uh, um, evolution and natural selection, he said, the presence of sheep are proof positive against the theory of natural selection because sheep should not have survived. If natural selection, if, if species went, really went through the process of natural selection, sheep would not be here. And that's a fair point. They're not particularly bright. They don't have any skills other than making other little sheep and eating. Except for one thing. Peculiarly, they do learn to recognize the voice of their shepherd. And it's as though God created them this way. You'd almost think that God made them that way for a reason. One commentator says, Sheep without a shepherd are in life-threatening trouble. There's a principle here that not only does God lead his people, but in this world also he appoints leaders for his people, under shepherds if you like, serving under Christ for the good of the church of Jesus Christ. And we see this in scripture where God had appointed a structure of leadership all along for the for his people throughout their history, from judges to kings to prophets to priests to apostles and from the apostles, elders or overseers of the church. And that's what it's been since the apostolic era. God has called ministers, that is elders, pastors, overseers, to give spiritual leadership and sustenance to his people. The New Testament epistles are rich with these sorts of references. Particularly if you were to study First and Second Timothy and Titus, you will find it very helpful in understanding the character and the, and the calling and the role of the under-shepherd, the elder, the minister, the overseer of God's people. And Jesus' words here imply that there will be men appointed to that task who serve under Christ for the sake of the flock of God. Or as one commentator puts it, quote, Jesus' words imply an endorsement of those who enter into leadership in Christ's name, leaders who come after him whom he knows. But it also implies a warning 
For there are illegitimate shepherds whose entry he prohibits. This is why the church must practice formal and rigorous processes for the identification, the training, the ordaining of qualified men to serve the church as her ministers. So if you're ever wondering why it is that we Presbyterians get so picky about this, here's why. Here's why. Because God's people, for as long as God has ordained men to come and lead his people in this fallen world, there have been people who do it poorly. There have been false shepherds, false priests, false messiahs, bad ministers, bad pastors, bad elders. And so no wonder we take this so seriously. We don't allow someone to just waltz in here and say, the Lord called me, and we go, oh, really? Great. Here's the Bible. Get up and preach. We don't do that. We take it seriously because the New Testament takes it deadly seriously. And this is why we have in the Scripture, both explicitly and implicitly, both by way of instruction and description, that there are processes by which men are identified and equipped and called and ordained into this service to help minimize, in this fallen world we'll, we'll never perfectly eradicate it, but to help minimize the presence of bad shepherds among God's people. One of the things we know in the Old Testament is that right along with idolatry, among the worst sins that, that earn some of God's worst, most harsh words of judgment, right along with idolatry were the false shepherds, the bad shepherds. And the church is still dogged by them today. From greedy prosperity preachers to these sensationalists who claim to perform miracles but will never step foot in a children's cancer ward. To false teachers and heretics who don't know the scriptures or they twist the scriptures and they lead people away from Christ. To those who may have impeccable theology but they prey upon the church for their own sexual gratification. God reserves judgment for them. These are not men who are good men but made a mistake. These are men who prey upon the flock. They are Faithless shepherds and they face the judgment of God. Sorry, but I get worked up about this. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle writes this, quote, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, being examples to the flock. And then the chief shepherd appears. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And can I just say, for a point of personal privilege here, God has been exceedingly kind to Covenant Presbyterian Church by blessing us with elders who truly love the Lord and love God's people. I've been serving an ordained ministry 30 years, I've been in vocational ministry for a little over 35 years. And I've never served alongside a more well-equipped, a more competent, a more godly group of 
under shepherds in my life. I just haven't. The session I serve along with, and not just the session, I'll expand that to the deacons and to all of the church staff. I've never served with a finer, godlier group of people in a church in my life. And I hope you'll remember that. I hope that when you think of the elders of this church, when you think of the pastors, you will, you will think, those are my shepherds. And they love the sheep because they do. That under our chief shepherd, those are the men that Christ has appointed through the church to care for me, to lead me, to protect me, to warn me, to guide me, to know me. The pattern that we see in the New Testament, this has been followed with these men. All, ultimately, under the leadership of our chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Well, now look again, beginning in verse 7. Because now Jesus moves from the imagery of himself for, as shepherd, which he'll return to in the text we're looking at next week. But now he does something else. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, again with this formal address, truly, truly, I say to you, because what he's doing is he's now explaining what he just said to his disciples, because we see in verse 6 that, that this figure of speech Jesus used, that is the translation of a word that can also be rendered parable, This figure of speech, this metaphor, this parable that Jesus had said about sheep and shepherds and bad shepherds, his disciples weren't understanding it. So he explains it to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is what I'm saying, guys. I am the door of the sheep, he says. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, a a, a lot of people in Israel and Judah did listen to them, but notice that, that, that Jesus differentiates between the people who listened to the bad shepherds and the false messiahs and the idolaters. They weren't among the sheep, actually. The sheep hear the voice of the Lord. The sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. This is the third of Jesus' formal I am statements that that we find in John chapter 7. There are seven of them in in, in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them, um, these formal I am statements. This is the third. Jesus has already said, uh, before Abraham was, I am. You know, now he says... And he he said, I am the light of the world. Now he says, I am the door. And remember the significance of these I am statements. When Jesus pronounces these I am statements, he is identifying himself directly with the Lord, as the Lord in the flesh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses. The God of Sinai. The creator and redeemer of all. Jesus is saying, I am. I'm not a prophet of God. I am. I'm not just sent by God, I am. And here he says, I am the door. And in this he is, again, revealing things about his person and about his work. Um, As the good shepherd, he's the one who cares for the sheep, provides for their salvation at the cost of his life. As the door, he is the one way of entrance into this salvation. Jesus is communicating here the same basic truth which we find on his lips and the lips of the apostles throughout the New Testament. In chapter 1, Jesus is depicted as a ladder connecting heaven and earth, the one way 
to the Father. In chapter 14, verse 6, He will declare Himself to be the only way to the Father. There's only one way of inclusion into the sheepfold of God, and that is Jesus Christ. And sticking with the the sheep-shepherd imagery, Jesus promises pasture to those who come to Him. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, while that may not particularly resonate with 21st century Americans, it absolutely did and still would for the people living in and around the Mediterranean region, particularly in Palestine. Pastures were places of abundance of food and water. And for a people living in the first century in an arid land, the promise of never-ending, always available food and water would have been something far too great for them to even imagine. Jesus says, you come to me and you will always find pasture. Isn't it wonderful? You know, he's drawing there on imagery that we have from Psalm 23. Some of you are already thinking about it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus is saying, those who come to me will find pasture, that place of abundant food and water, that place where there are no hiding places for predators. It's a place of safety. Jesus is the door. He's the door to that eternal and peaceable kingdom where life is lived in all of its fullness. Chief among the functions of any door would be security and access. Security and access. A good door helps to secure a structure from threats and thieves. But a door simultaneously grants access to those who belong. What a rich portrait this is of Jesus, considering the safety and the access granted by a proper door. I love what J.C. Ryle wrote in in the 19th century. The very first questions in religion that must be answered are these. How can I draw near to God? How can I be justified? How can a sinner like me be reconciled to my Maker? A religion must answer those questions because those are the questions that weigh on the human heart. What will make me right? What will give me peace? What will lead to my salvation? What will give me life? In the early part of the 20th century, two of the great men of the church were among a group of people traveling from England to the United States on a large steamer ship. And those two men were G. Campbell Morgan, who by all uh, arguments could have been uh, easily known as the greatest preacher of his generation, and Sir George Adam Smith, one of the great eminent Old Testament scholars of that day. And Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, recounted a particular story that Professor Smith had told them during that ship voyage. Smith, while taking one of his journeys to the Middle East, uh, learning more and more about that region, particularly the Holy Land, in his role as an Old Testament scholar, said that one day uh, he had a particular conversation with a shepherd. And the shepherd was there at the sheep pen, the sheep fold uh, that we had talked about earlier. And uh, he was telling them about his role. Smith, through an interpreter, was asking him questions and getting answers. And along the way, Smith, Professor Smith, notices that at the doorway, the entryway into the sheep pen had no door attached to it. There was nothing to draw across it. It was just an, it was just an open entryway. 
And Smith asked him about this. He says, why is there no door to the sheep pen? To which Smith recounts, the shepherd said through the interpreter, I am the door. Every night, once all the sheep are in, I lay across this entryway. If any of the sheep try to get out, I know it. If anything tries to get in, I know it. I'm the door. How brilliant, how brilliant it is of Jesus to draw upon that imagery to say, if you want, if you want access to the pasture, if you want access to the sheep pen, if you want, if you want to be a part of the flock of God, then you've got to come through the door. And I'm the door. I'm the door. And all of this comes to a theological crescendo then in verse 10. Do you see it? Jesus is the shepherd. He is the door. Ultimately, he is the life giver. The thief, Jesus said, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, that's a definitive statement. And I think Jesus is speaking in a twofold manner here. He certainly is referencing those that he's already referenced, the false shepherds, the false messiahs, the bad priests, the bad ministers who will come along. They're like thieves. They steal, kill, and destroy. And you know, this is also not just those false messiahs and bad shepherds. Of course, ultimately, it is Satan. Satan has under-shepherds too, as it were, or under-thieves, we might call them, who all serve, whether they know it or not, under the chief thief, the one who has always come to do the same thing, to steal, kill, and destroy. And please remember that, friends, that when he tempts you, when the thief, when Satan, when the enemy of your soul tempts you, and he is going to tempt you, he'll tempt you sometime in the next 10 seconds, he's going to tempt you, when he does so, it is always to do one thing, to steal, kill, and destroy. He never intends your good, he never does good, he never delivers on his promises. What he comes to do is steal, kill, and destroy. And so everything he entices you to do is for the purpose of stealing from you, destroying you, killing you, taking everything away from you, and leaving you barren and empty. That's what the thief does. And so everything he has designed for your life, every temptation he has crafted for your heart, is for the purpose to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember that. That is the only thing sin does. Pleasures it will give for a moment. Relief it may offer for a passing second, but it leads to the same place always. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is never for you. He never designs your good. He never plots for your safety and your security, but only, always, for your destruction. Hate sin, my friends. Hate it. Hate temptation. Flee from it. Don't toy with it. Don't welcome it. Don't make a home for it. Hate your sin. Do not, have, do not think you can go through this life with a neutral attitude towards sin or by giving just a little bit of real estate in your heart for this particular sin. Don't do it. Hate it all. Treat it like an enemy. Picture it as the as the Puritans once did, this older generation, long past, a wiser generation in so many ways than we are. They personified sin as an enemy whose neck must be crushed. We would do well to do the same thing. 
The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But then what does Jesus say in that very next clause? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life is a chief theme in John's gospel. Repeatedly, we hear Jesus promise eternal life to everyone who believes. Whoever believes in me shall never perish but have everlasting life. And the quality and eternal nature of the life that Jesus gives is so significant that he can say to people who in this fallen world will die, but the life that Jesus gives gives is so qualitatively powerful and pure and eternal that he can say, you'll never perish because the death we face has been stripped of all its power to hold. Jesus declares himself to be the life. And of course, this is far more than simply meeting the merest standards of biological activity. That Jesus came to give life, and life abundantly means that the life he gives is quantifiably and qualitatively better than anything found in the world by a magnitude beyond our imagining. In Christ, the eternal nature of the life he died to give begins the moment a sinner believes. That is why we say that even now we have come into possession of eternal life. Whatever provision, whatever blessings we experience in this fallen world, they are merely a foretaste of the limitless abundance and peace and joy to be had when the Lord brings us into his presence. Last week, an article popped up from a major news network. I'm sitting there minding my business, doing sermon prep, and this comes up on my news feed, quote, 10 tips to live to 100. And I thought, oh, you're helping me with my sermon prep. 10 tips to live to 100. And the article offers 10 ways to boost your chances to make it to the century mark. Now, can I just say, first of all, let's get this out of the way, that the idea of living to 100 just makes me tired. (laughs) I'm tired at 56. Can you imagine what I'd be like at 100? Nobody wants that. Um, I mean, you know, living to 100, it's just not, I mean, my bags are packed already. I'm ready. Let's go. Um... But if you'd like to make it to 100, here you go. Are you ready? You might want to jot these down. First of all, it tells us, cultivate curiosity, which they say is a natural desire for knowledge and exploration. Well, okay, cultivate curiosity. I can do that. I like to read. I like to learn stuff. I'll cultivate curiosity. Sounds nice and safe and boring. Count me in. Number two. Stay Social. Okay, I mean, if that's number two, I'm already in trouble here. I'm, mm, mm. Number three, keep moving. At this point, it's just getting sketchier as we go along. Anyway, it goes pretty much like that until we, so this is number nine. Ready for number nine? Take cold showers. And right there, it's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm 56. Maybe get me to 60 and I'll be fine. But if you're ever curious, I mean, you know, you can try those things. And 
we'll throw you a party if you make it to 100. You know, if you're ever curious about this, just do a simple Google search on reversing the aging process or living forever, and it'll keep you busy for weeks. The number of studies and articles that have been written on this topic just in the last 12, 18, 24 months. It's the obsession. Now, I'm all for health professionals who work to save our lives and to help us be healthier. If you're a health professional, may your tribe increase. We love you and we're thankful for you. But the quest to, so, you know, this so-called quest to, to reverse the aging process, there are smart, there are otherwise intelligent people who think we might be able to do that. It's a fool's errand. Jesus came to give us life precisely because sin robbed us of it. As we've moved along in this gospel, we've seen Jesus asserting and proving his authority to lead the sheep. He has revealed himself as the fulfillment of all that the prophets had testified to. He has demonstrated his power over nature, his power to command blind eyes to be opened, his power over the wind and the water, and we'll see in chapter 11 that he has the power to raise the dead. He has declared himself to be the I Am. And all of that is gloriously true. But he says so much more about himself as well. He's not only powerful. He's not only the wonder worker. He's not only the commander of all creation. He's also the good shepherd of God's flock. He's the door of their salvation and the divine guarantor of a salvation that will be forever. He's the one who says, I have come to give life and that abundantly. He has the best interest of the sheep at heart. This is what you have to remember. Friends, if you struggle with the uniqueness of Christ, that Christ is the only way to salvation, if you struggle with that, or if you have friends or family members who struggle with that, you know, you can say, I I understand why you don't like the message that Jesus is the only Savior, because after all, you're a sinner. You wouldn't like that message. But here's the good news. The one and only Savior saves sinners and He'll save you if you believe because He's the door. How many false saviors and gurus and various scoundrels have promised to save? How many bad pastors, bad shepherds, exploitative pastors who have used the flock of God for their own physical pleasures? None of that blots out the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd. How many different things do we look to in order to get the abundant life before we figure out until we go to Jesus? We won't find it. Some of you don't no doubt remember, and I've mentioned it several times over the last number of years, the now rather famous interview given by Tom Brady after his third Super Bowl win. And as he talked about this great achievement which placed him, still young, in the upper echelons of quarterbacks, he still said that he couldn't help but ask himself, is this all? Is this all there is? It's a remarkable moment. You can find it on YouTube. Where a younger Tom Brady with three Super Bowl rings at that point, at a moment where he should be at the top of the world, he says, it's not enough. 
Money and fame and worldly status may provide certain privileges and pleasures. It may provide access to elite company, but those things cannot save a marriage. They cannot stop a cancer cell. They cannot bring back a prodigal child. They cannot keep you from aging. They cannot solve the problem of futility. Is this all? Into all of this confusion and error and futility, Jesus cuts through it like a sharp knife. And he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's clear. That's clarity. That's Jesus saying, don't go there, come here. Christianity is a narrow door. We don't sneak into the sheepfold in any way other than the way that God himself has so graciously provided. We can't design our own way into the flock of God according to our own private beliefs or personal preferences. All of that is true. This is a created universe with a moral structure that reflects the morality and holiness and righteousness of its maker. So yes, we are not the authors of of our salvation. That's right. And yes, there are fences. We can't just roam around and expect to be untouched. We can't roam around ethically or theologically wherever we want to roam and expect there to not be any negative consequences because there are fences in this world. But God did not make a narrow door and he did not make high fences in order to steal joy away from us, but in order to give joy to us. Even in a sinful world. Listen, the devil's lie from the very beginning has been this. Don't trust God. Don't trust him. Isn't that what he was saying to the woman? Don't don't believe what God has said. Don't trust him. He wants to minimize your joy. He wants to to constrict you. He wants to take away your creativity and, and limit your freedom. Don't trust him. He's got rules. He's got commands. He's holding out on you. And all of that is a lie from hell. God's law, God's commands, his boundaries, all of this he has established to protect us precisely because he wants what is good for us. Is there any good parent who doesn't know this? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That was not a lie. It isn't that Christianity is an easy life. It oftentimes will make our lives harder in some ways. Generations of Christians have known this. But it is the best life. It is the only life where we can know peace, where our conscience can be at rest. And it is life eternal in the presence of our Maker and Redeemer. Life eternal in perfect harmony with one another and with all that God has created in the age to come. It is the life that every person longs for in every generation, from every culture, sophisticated to primitive. Every heart longs for this world that we don't have yet precisely because God created us to long for it. And Jesus, the shepherd of God's beloved people, is the door to that salvation life. Do you believe that? Have you believed that? We talked talked last week about the man born blind and Jesus' healing of him. 
that Jesus himself is the light of the world. The previous week we talked about God's gracious providence in our suffering. And some of you are in the middle of seasons of pain. So we don't pretend that's not happening. We don't deny your present sorrows. But through it, can you believe that your shepherd is good nevertheless? Can you believe that he is redeeming and will finally redeem not only your life, but your sorrows as well? You know, I think it's possible for us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the only gate for the sheep. I think it's possible for us to affirm all of those things, but suspect maybe he's not that good. Oh, friends, he is good. Will you believe that he's good? That Jesus is your good shepherd? And that all that he has you going through, all of the commandments for your life, all of the promises and all of the fences as well, all of the blessings and all of the adversity are all because he wants you not to have less, but ultimately to have more. Not more wealth or health in this fallen world, but more as it really counts, an abundance that is eternal. He's the good shepherd. Do you believe that? Believe it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of your soul, and you will be saved. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. And now, our Father and our God, we ask your help that by your Holy Spirit this word of yours will not depart from us, but will take root in our hearts and will yield a harvest of righteousness for your sake and for our joy. God, grant faith to the skeptic, grant repentance to the sinner, grant strength to your sheep today, your people, your beloved flock. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.